Thank you, Wilma. Now, the Bodleian has been collecting Chinese books since its foundation, a period in excess of 400 years. And the, the most remarkable thing about this is that it probably gives us a longer period of Chinese book collecting continuously um, than any other library, including China. So it would be surprising if we didn't have anything worth looking at and I'll be trying to give you a flavour of our collections over the last half hour or so. Is this working? Well, I was going to say, I think it's... Did you have it on mute? I've changed it. It's working. It's working, OK. Now, our first datable um, acquisition was made in 1604. It's shelf-marked Sinica II and was signed by Thomas Bodley himself upside down, as neither he nor any other Oxford scholar would be able to read it for well over two centuries. <laughs> that is upside down, and there is Bodley's signature. This is the text, first page of the text. It's part of a very down-market edition of the so-called Four Books of Confucian Learning, probably produced in the late 16th century in the city of Zhenyang, which at the time was the centre of commercial book production in China. It's a unique surviving copy of this edition. Sinica 41, another book acquired at this time, is one of only two surviving copies, and the other is incomplete. It's a collection of stories about good morality, but more interesting is the inscription on the cover. This is in Dutch and is dated 1603. Experts at Leiden University have transcribed it and we read towards the bottom that the book is accompanied by a little Chinese box, various seashells and two sheets of white paper. In fact, this is the most vivid evidence we have of what can only be inferred from other sources, that this book and others like it was obtained by members of the Dutch East India Company from overseas Chinese traders in Southeast Asia on whose tropical shores the seashells were gathered, and that it was sold as part of a job lot of curiosities at an auction in Amsterdam. At that time, Chinese books were considered to be curiosities for inclusion in the so-called cabinets of curiosities, which were often the founding collections of museums, including our own Ashmolean. But its testimony to the intelligence of Thomas Bodley, as if any were needed, that he regarded these books not as curiosities, but for what they were, in the belief that one day there would be scholars in Oxford who could read them. And so by far the biggest part of the early 17th century Dutch East India Company imports is to be found right here in this building. Also part of this corpus is the famous manual of shipping routes with compass bearings which came from the estate of William Lord in 1637, MS Lord Orr 145, which we now call the Lord Rutter. It's not only a, a unique surviving manuscript of its type, but in describing the route from the coast of Fujian province to the Ryukyu Islands, it mentions the disputed Senkaku Islands by their Chinese name of Diaoyu the earliest document to do so. Later in the 16th century, the English East India Company also brought Chinese books home, although not so many, 
as they had now, by now ceased to be curiosities, and in any case, nobody could read them. Notable among these are the official calendars acquired from the southern Ming dynasty on the island of Taiwan. As the Manchus swept down from the north in 1644, the last Ming emperor hanged himself in Peking, and the remnants of his dynasty fled to the south and eventually holed themselves up on the island of Taiwan, where they held out for another 30 years or so. They produced these calendars in the time-honored fashion to give themselves credibility as an imperial dynasty. Seneca 58 is one of 50 copies of the calendar for the year 1671 that was given to Henry Dakers, agent of the East India Company, as a sign that the company was officially entitled to trade there. Seneca 88, a unique surviving copy, which can currently be seen next door in the Genius Exhibition, is of particular interest because of its rather late date of 1677. It was formerly in the possession of Elias Ashmole, who describes it as a China almanac given me by Mr. Coley, 28th of September, 1680. Henry Coley was a tradesman in Oxford who even published his own calendars, and his connection with Ashmole was a shared interest in astrology. Also, probably of East India Company provenance, is a large coloured manuscript map which was among the huge collection of the London lawyer John Selden, which came to the library in 1659. Perhaps on account of its size and appearance, MS Selden Supra 105 was kept on permanent display. It was never lost sight of, but its importance has only recently been recognised. Earlier, and most later maps, depicted China not only as the centre of the known world, but as occupying almost its entire area. This is evidenced in Seneca 123, a pair of printed maps in the form of hanging scrolls given to us in 1684 by George White, an East India Company merchant. They are almost certainly another unique surviving printed copy and were perhaps made to hang in a local school or family academy. One of the maps depicts the heavens, the others the earth. By contrast, China occupies less than one half the area of the Selden map, which is centered on the South China Sea, with an equal area depicting the Philippines, Borneo, Java, Sumatra, Southeast Asia, and notionally, notionally at least, India. The depiction of China itself is not the purpose of the map, and is copied from a standard printed map <coughs> of the period. It's thus the earliest example of Chinese merchant cartography, unique in not being a product of the imperial bureaucracy. In January 2008, the Selden map was examined by the American scholar Robert Batchelor. He was the first to notice the shipping routes which make the map unique among both Chinese and indeed European maps of the period and has described it as an object of globally recognizable significance. These routes indicate the extent of China's intercourse with the rest of the world at a time when it was generally supposed to have been isolated, so that now the map is reckoned to be one of the most important Chinese historical documents in existence. 
Unfortunately, it isn't known exactly where it was drawn or who drew it and for what purpose. It's elaborately decorated with landscapes and plants and almost certainly produced for reference in the house of a rich merchant rather than for use at sea. It was probably produced in the early 17th century. The compiler was almost certainly a Chinese and was probably based in Southeast Asia as the map's depiction of that area was to remain the most accurate for another two centuries. The map has already been the subject of numerous articles and two major monographs and will be exhibited together with the white maps next door in the Blackwell Hall from early September. Let me now summarize why our 17th century Chinese acquisitions, including the Selden map and the Lord Rutter, are so rare and important. It is simply because they were written by the wrong class of person. They're the sort of books that would never have got into the library of a Chinese scholar and thence into the special collections of a modern Chinese state or university library. You'll see this in a moment when we look at some of the books in the Backhouse collection, which were mostly produced by the Chinese government or educated scholars. They're different in every way. These scholars represented the very thinnest of veneers in Chinese society and what they wrote tells us very little about the lives and preoccupations of the majority of the Chinese people. Our 17th century books take us a little further down the social scale, although not of course to the bottom, which was completely illiterate. The editions of the Confucian texts were down market and of no practical use to the scholar. The novels were lowbrow, the calendars were seditious, and the rutter and the map portray the tradesman's view of the world, not the scholars. And that both of these documents are in manuscript, and that neither was printed, speaks for itself. And in any case, at the time they were produced, overseas travel was illegal. But in Oxford, nobody knew these things. And as rarities, the books were highly valued and carefully preserved. They were kept in one of the few lockable cupboards in the old library. Archive A, to be precise, the first cupboard on the left when you enter Arts End by the South Staircase. But important as these 17th century acquisitions are, they don't constitute a sinological library. They're really odds and ends which time has turned into objects of great value. For Sinology, we must skip a hundred years or so and turn to the Protestant missionaries of the 19th century. Whatever one's views of their attempts to convert the Chinese to Christianity, it's indisputable that the way they went about it was truly heroic. They were the channel through which ideas flowed from east to west and from west to east, <coughs> and the Bodleians' collections illustrate both these processes perfectly. In 1876, the year that the Scottish missionary James Legg was appointed Oxford's first professor of Chinese, Joseph Edkins, himself a missionary and a distinguished scholar, published a catalogue of Chinese books in the Bodleian Library. Legg was the famous translator of the so-called Chinese classics, the canonical works of Confucianism, and Edkins' catalogue shows that we already had an excellent edition of that large-scale work in the library. Seneca 364 was made in Canton in 1871 
and is a woodcut facsimile of the imperial edition made in Peking at the behest of the Qianlong Emperor in 1739. It was the best edition available at the time, and I wonder if Legg used it when making his translations. Twenty years earlier, we had already bought books from Edwin Evans, another missionary who seems to have been particularly fond of popular novels. <coughs> Seneca 217 is from his collection. It was printed in 1839 and is of the Gong An genre. Such novels were and remain extremely popular. They're concerned with the committing of a crime and its subsequent legal handling, focusing on the actions of a clever judge. Evans used his English signet ring to mark his ownership and some of his books have pencil markings indicating when and where he read them. But the most significant missionary for our collections was Alexander Wiley, who for 30 years was an agent of the British and Foreign Bible Society in China. His notes on Chinese literature, published in Shanghai in 1867, is still a useful reference. He retired to Oxford and when his eyesight began to fail in the early 1880s, he sold us the books on which this monumental work was based, thus trebling the size of our collections. He was also very active in recording and documenting the works in Chinese written by the missionaries themselves, and was probably instrumental in our acquisition of a very large collection of these, which had been exhibited at the International Exhibition at Philadelphia in 1876. Shortly after, we also received the exhibits from the International Exhibition in London in 1884, so that the Bodleian now holds what is probably the biggest collection of the printed output of the 19th century Protestant missionaries in China. This collection is of outstanding interest and is by far the most heavily used of all our Chinese special collections. I'll try to give you a flavour of it. Seneca 1767 is by the American missionary John Wynne Quarterman. It's an illustrated tract on Bible stories published in Ningbo in 1855. The illustration shows Samson bringing down the pillars of the temple. The missionaries made great efforts to make their teachings comprehensible to the common people and were the first to publish in Chinese local dialects, usually expressed in Romanization. Seneca 311 is a translation of Genesis into Ningbo dialect by the English missionary William Armstrong Russell, written in Romanization and block printed. It was also published in Ningbo four years earlier in 1851 and our copy may be a unique survival. Seneca 1311 <coughs> is a primer of Ningbo dialect by the American missionary Henry Van Fleck Rankin reprinted in Shanghai in 1871. It was first published in Ningbo in 1857. In the 1850s, the American missionary Tarleton Perry Crawford even invented an alphabet for writing Shanghai dialect, and a number of tracts were published in it. Seneca 1280 is a tract on the sources of good and evil by Mrs. Cabanis wife of the Southern Baptist missionary A.B. Cabanis, published in Shanghai in 1856. 
In an article in the China Recorder in 1888, Crawford pronounced that Chinese hieroglyphics, like their Egyptian predecessors, are doomed to the tomb and the antiquary. Needless to say, this is not quite what happened. <laughs> While the Chinese script continues to flourish, the forgotten remains of Crawford's efforts survive perhaps only in the form of a few publications in the Bodleian, all from the Philadelphia Centennial Exhibition, and one or two <coughs> elsewhere. The need to sing hymns also caused the missionaries to introduce Western music and its theory to the Chinese. Seneca 1260 is a treatise on this subject by the English Presbyterian missionary Carstairs Douglas, published in Amoy in 1870. Seneca 1636 is a hymn book by the American missionary Edward Clemens Lord, published in 1856. Here we have not only the hymns in Chinese characters, but also a Romanized transcription into Ningbo dialect, together with the musical score. The missionaries were also instrumental in translating the standard works of Western science and technology into Chinese, and we could spend the afternoon looking at these. They're so interesting and important. Seneca 2162 is one <coughs> of the large number of such works that were published by the Jiangnan Arsenal during the 1860s and 1870s. The Jiangnan Arsenal was established in 1865 as part of China's self-strengthening movement and had a translation bureau directed by the Englishman John Fryer, a former missionary who also had a hand in most of the translations. Seneca 2162 is his translation of the Engineer and Machinist's Drawing Book, a work by the French industrial engineers Leblanc and Armangot which at the time was standard and ran into many editions. We bought Seneca 6308 only last year. It's the revision by Henry Thomas Whitney of Dorfin William Osgood's translation of Gray's Anatomy, published in Fuzhou in 1889. <coughs> this edition is of, of exceptional rarity and contains a number of coloured woodcut illustrations. Osgood was an American medical missionary and first published his translation of Gray's Anatomy in 1881. We already had a copy of this. It was the first scientific work on human anatomy to be written in Chinese. Missionary activities sometimes had surprising results. As in 1836, when after reading a Protestant missionary tract, Hung Xiu Chuan declared himself to be the younger brother of Jesus Christ and founded a millennial rebel movement which shook the Chinese government to the core. The Taiping Rebellion, as it was called, was eventually put down in the 1860s by the ever-victorious army under the leadership of Charles Chinese Gordon, whom we otherwise know as Garden, uh, Gordon of Khartoum but for a time it ruled vast swathes of central and southern China and issued edicts and other documents bearing its large official seal. Seneca 1094 number 3 is an example. The Bodleian is one of only a handful of libraries to hold these materials. They are only found in foreign libraries because after, crushing, after the crushing of the rebellion, possession of them in China would have had serious and uncomfortable consequences. 
just as the possession of a southern Ming calendar would have done in the Qing dynasty, or like the possession of Falun Gong publications would do in China today. You may have heard the name of Edmund Trelawney Backhouse, who was a subject of a book by Hugh Trevor Roper, A Hidden Life, published in 1976. Later editions were called The Hermit of Peking. Backhouse was a contemporary of Oscar Wilde at Oxford, but fled to Peking in 1895 without a degree, having accumulated debts of over £20,000, a fortune at the, at the time, and not an inconsiderable sum even now. He was a linguistic genius and attained total fluency in Chinese, picking up Russian and Japanese on the way. In Peking, he moved in the highest circles and put together a Chinese library of outstanding quality which he donated to the Bodleian in stages between 1913 and 1922 in the hope that the university would offer him the chair of Chinese. It didn't, but we kept the books. <laughs> uh, there's a lesson here, perhaps. Thus, at a stroke, for a brief period, the Bodleian held the finest Chinese library outside the Far East until we were equaled, and in some cases overtaken, by the big American university libraries and some of the great national libraries. But we are still left with many editions unique in the West. The books in the Backhouse collection are quite unlike anything we had collected hitherto. There are dozens, even hundreds of editions published by the imperial government during the Ming and Qing dynasties and <coughs> by famous scholars. Editions which the missionaries, with their limited means and social connections, could not hope to lay their hands on. The blocks for Backhouse 431 were cut in 1448. Although this is not old by the standards of Chinese printing, which began in the first millennium, it is possibly the oldest printed book in the Bodleian. It's an edition of the works of the Tang Dynasty authors Han Yu and Liu Zongyuan. Backhouse 406 is an edition of the standard Ming Dynasty rhyming dictionary, Hongwu Zhengyun, or Correct Rhymes of the Hongwu Period. This edition was published in 1561. Our copy is superb, as it preserves its original covers and printed labels. <coughs> Backhouse 69, currently in the Genius Exhibition next door, is a so-called palace edition of the complete works of the Sung Dynasty Neo-Confucian scholar Zhu Xi, cut in 1713. These editions were compiled by teams of scholars working in the Imperial Palace in Peking and are of the highest quality, both textually and in their physical production. The two red seals are those of the Kangxi Emperor. Backhouse 217 is also a palace edition of the Kangxi period, cut a few years later in 1721. It's an encyclopedia of elegant phrases, perhaps devised as a reference for writing essays and poetry. It is one of the most technically perfect block printed books in our collection. The printing is crystal clear, it must be a very early impression, and the fine white paper is of the highest quality. The red collector's seal, perfectly applied, is that of Prince Guo, 
a title held by one of the Kangxi Emperor's sons who died in 1738 and, a ne and his nephew, a son of the Yongzheng Emperor, who inherited it. Backhouse 19 is yet another palace edition which contains two of the finest woodcut illustrations of its period. Its title can be translated as A Single Drop from the Ocean of Scripture. It's a collection of excerpts from the Buddhist canon that the Yongzheng Emperor particularly liked to read and was printed in 1735. MS Backhouse 11 is the famous book with jade covers which was given to Backhouse by Grand Secretary Rung Lu, the man in charge of the entire government of China, on the 26th of June, 1902. It contains 20 poems by the Qianlong Emperor and is an exquisite product of the Imperial Workshop. It's a so-called sleeve edition as it is small enough to be carried in the sleeve of a gown. This book too is currently in the Genius Exhibition next door. The materials I've talked about are all what we now call special and are kept and used in this building. But from the mid-20th century, we've been acquiring books printed by modern processes in large quantities. These are stored and read elsewhere. Furthermore, more than half our expenditure is now on electronic resources which have no tangible existence at all. What we acquired in former times has automatically become special on account of its date. Our special acquisitions now are made either through infrequent purchase, bequests or donations. I've already shown an example of something we've bought, the edition of Gray's Anatomy, and we'll conclude by briefly mentioning a very significant bequest and a remarkable donation made only a fortnight ago. In 2003, we inherited the library of Piet van der Loon, professor of Chinese at Oxford when I first came here. Some 10,000 volumes occupying 250 meters of shelving in his house on Boar's Hill. Even now, we're still going through it. Among his books were found three collections of highly ephemeral popular literature, mostly published in the opening decades of the 20th century. Amazing, both for their quantity and the fact they even survived at all. Most people read and sang from such publications and then threw them away, just like newspapers. Seneca 4058 is one of 473 examples of songs from the Minnan region, that is, the area in southern Fujian province adjoining Xiamen or Amoy. Seneca 5027 is a so-called wooden fish book, so-called because the chanting was kept in time by striking a wooden fish. These were produced in large numbers in Canton and Hong Kong, and Pete collected 319 of them. Added to the 102 examples already in our collections, we have what is almost the largest collection of this genre outside the Canton area. Seneca 5326, with its interesting cover, far more risque in the time and place that it was produced than it is here today, is one of 459 editions of short sung pieces that get translated as Cantonese operas. 
As for the donation we received only a fortnight ago, it was made by Anthony Bradley, a retired lawyer living in Cumna, and consisted of a single box. Its contents were the nachlas of his maternal grandfather, Arthur Bonzi, who had been a missionary in Hankou in central China for over 40 years between 1882 and 1923. He was a younger contemporary of the well-known Welsh missionary Griffith John. The box turned out to be a time capsule of extraordinary interest. It contained almost a hundred missionary tracts of which we did not have a copy and some 70 single-sheet items, most of them almost certainly unique survivals. Some of these are missionary materials. For example, the illustrated handout detailing the activities of the college that had been set up by Griffith John and of which Bonzi was principal for a time. This college survives to the present day as Wuhan Number no. 4 Middle School. Others are official handouts of one sort or another that were read and then discarded, such as the handbill or perhaps a small poster announcing the establishment of mathematics and Western science as a subject for the official government examinations. One final source of special things, which might perhaps surprise you, is material that just turns up in the library, where it has lain undiscovered or unrecognized for what it is, sometimes for centuries. Such things are inevitable in an institution as old as the Bodleian, which houses such large and varied collections. Four years ago, when sorting out the mess in the basement of this building, in preparation for the magnificent transformation which you see round about us, I found a box containing 12 large paper hanging scrolls which now bear, bear the shelf marks Sinica 6334, 35 and 36. Their provenance is unknown, but they bear the date stamp the 24th of January 1907. The twelve scrolls turned out to be three sets of acupuncture charge, charts, each consisting of four scrolls. The oldest set is dated 1665 and the other two 1782 and 1783. Such charts are of exceptional rarity and for a library to <coughs> possess three complete sets of them is almost unheard of. I don't know how they managed to stay hidden here for so long and I wonder what else is waiting to be found. <laughs> so if there are any questions, if we have time, I'll try to answer them.